All right, well, we are coming to the end of our study tonight on the assurance of salvation in Scripture. And our goal here is to kind of wrap things up and tie things together, hopefully in a practical way. And I hope by the end of our time tonight, you'll leave with, you know, a clearer understanding of the assurance of salvation and even the knowledge of how to you know, put all this into practice in your own life as you think about yourself and your own assurance of salvation that you have a, a practical understanding of this all. And we often begin these studies with a little bit of recap, you know, from the week before. This time, though, I kind of want to recap in such a way as to bring everything we have learned so far together. So even if you missed everything before, like, well, you pick the right night to show up because it'll still all come together here in, in the conclusion. Each week, we, we narrow in on these little building blocks of assurance. But now let's just kind of put them all together and then step back and look at the bigger picture of the assurance of salvation in Scripture. It's what we want to do here. So once again, assurance of salvation is the knowledge that one is truly saved. You know, one day that knowledge will be irrelevant, right? One day we'll be in the kingdom, we'll be in God's presence, the presence of Christ. Faith will turn into sight and assurance of salvation will be a non-issue. It it's, will become truly irrelevant. But for now though, on, on this side of eternity, it is, it is definitely relevant. It is most relevant We desperately want to know that we will get to that point. We will reach the goal. We will cross the finish line. We want to know that now. It's not wrong to want to know that if one is truly saved. And God himself wants us to know. He does not want us to live in a perpetual insecurity. As if we're always wondering and worrying that if we die, are we actually going to go to hell? We're not to presume on anything, but he wants us to take him at his word. He's made promises on how you get to heaven by faith in Christ. He wants us to take him at his word. And he wants us to live with security and confidence, not in ourselves, not in our performance, but in Christ, that we might live with joy and boldness. So we're not spending our days just trapped in fear and worry about what's going to happen to us after we die, but we've gained confidence in Christ and in our faith in him so we can now just worry ourselves with, well, how do I serve him now? How do I use the rest of my life for his glory and his kingdom? So this is why early on we spent some time studying the attainability of assurance. In our first study, I think this assurance of salvation, it is a real thing and it is actually attainable. It's not just hypothetical. And furthermore, at just a basic level, we learned how, you know, we're outright commanded to test ourselves and see whether or not we're truly in the faith. I'll read again 2 Corinthians 13.5. Just a good, good verse to file away. It's, it's a command to test yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Near the end of the letter, Paul tells them, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And he says, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. A verse like that makes us wonder like, what, what is that talking about? How do, we, how do we know this? How do we do this? What is this test? What does this test consist of? How can we know the state of our salvation? As we've learned well, it can be kind of tricky to answer because we're dealing with spiritual matters, which means we're talking about things we cannot see. Just kind of think about this. Salvation is by faith, right? Right. Okay, you all know that. What is faith? Faith is trust. Confidence has an object. Jesus Christ is the only object. It's a faith and trust in Christ alone as your Savior, your Lord, the one who will deliver you. Okay. Where does that faith reside, though? It resides in your heart. Faith is an internal reality, not an external reality, so to speak, that that saving faith is in your heart. How do we know we have it if we can't see it? It's kind of an intangible thing. Who can see into the hearts of others, let alone their own heart? I mean, do I really have faith in my heart? Like, how do I tell? And answering that question has been much of our quest. You know, the assurance of salvation would be way easier to determine if salvation was based on works or performance. Because then your assurance would be based on your works and your performance. Right, if God just said, you know, you will be justified, you'll be saved if you, you know, do this list of good works, you got to go on pilgrimage to Rome three times, 
say the Lord's Prayer about a thousand times and, you know, give 10% of your income to the church. Do these things and you'll be saved. You'll enter the kingdom. If our salvation was based on our performance, then our knowledge of our salvation would likewise be based on our performance. Just, just check the list. Go through the list. Have you done all these things that God requires? If you jump through all the hoops that God requires to get into heaven, and well, if, if yes, well, then you're saved and you can be assured of your salvation because you've, you've checked the list. But that's not how salvation works. It comes at, entirely apart from our performance. And really, we know it comes despite our performance. We are sinners. We're rebels. We're evil before God, yet we can still be saved. How? By faith alone, which exists in the heart, based on, you know, Christ's performance, not ours, but his work, his finished work on the cross is what saved us, not ours, not our performance, but his. But once again, how do we know we have something we cannot see, this faith in in Christ? Well, Christ himself told us that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. In other words, what comes out of you, what comes out of your mouth, Even your actions reveals what's inside of you, what's in your heart. Reveals the state of your heart. That's in Mark chapter 7. It's making the point that, you know, what comes out, your mouth is a direct channel to what's inside, to your heart. We can't see our hearts, but we can learn something about our hearts by what comes out of our hearts. Namely, like our thoughts, our beliefs, our speech, our actions. So it kind of starts with this. First and foremost... What does a person believe? You want assurance of salvation? Well, we got to start here. Like, what do you even believe? What do you confess with your mouth? You probably know Romans 10, 9, but you might as well turn there if you want to turn to Romans 10, because you'll be in, I'll make you go to Romans again later. But Romans 10, 9 is a great, simple, straightforward verse. He makes a point earlier in chapter 10 that you know, salvation does not require some great act. Like you've got to go on some great pilgrimage, like ascending into heaven. You know that this word, the saving faith is near you. How near? It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. He says this word of faith, which you are preaching in verse 8. And then he says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just Hebrew parallelism, mouth and heart, it's using in parallel. This is all coming from the heart. It's expressed by the mouth. Really one and the same. This is faith. So do you confess and believe in your heart that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior? Have you trusted him for your salvation entirely? Do you confess that? Does a full allegiance to Christ come out of your heart? Where a lot of people would just say no to that, right? Well, they should not have assurance of salvation if you say no to that. This is kind of like a baseline. Do you even profess faith? And so, like, in one sense, how do you know that you're saved? Well, do you believe in Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord? Have you believed in your heart God raised him from the dead? Have you received the Son? And so we studied God's word or rather I should say, as we also studied God's word, clearly promises salvation for those who believe. God has made very clear, crystal clear, that those who do profess faith in his son like this and have real faith in their hearts in Christ, they are saved. Not just they will be, they they are saved. He grants them new birth in the present. He grants them eternal life in the present. That's a life that cannot be taken away from them. And so when you really boil it down, our assurance of salvation, like our salvation itself, is always going to be tied to our faith, which resides in our hearts. You can't really get around that. We're ultimately assured by faith in God's power and his promises to save us. So we we spent several weeks exploring that fact. And that some of you can be kind of hard to grasp, but it's just tying yeah, our salvation is based on faith. Our, our knowledge of that salvation is fundamentally also going to be based on that same faith. But as we also learn, that's not the end of the matter. It's not the end of the discussion. You might say in response, okay, well, I believe in Jesus. Uh, I'm not one of those who says, 
no, I, I disregard him. No, I believe him. I believe the things about him. I believe he's real. I have, I think I trust him. I, I say I trust him. I've confessed him as Lord and Savior. I think I have true faith in my heart. And so based on God's promises to save those who believe, like, you know, John six forty seven, truly, truly, he who believes has eternal life. I believe. So therefore, you know, based on those promises, I can have assurance, right? Yes, right, you can. That is very much true. But as we found, it can get a little complicated, though, simply by the fact that Scripture gives us several examples of people who are just like that, but who weren't actually saved. They were deceived. The faith they thought they had was false. In reality, their hearts were empty. They weren't born again. They're still in the darkness. They confused saving faith with something else. Some people even had total assurance. They believed 100% that when they died, well, they would for sure go to heaven. But they were wrong and they didn't. They had a rude awakening. We saw that, for example, in Matthew 7, a crystal clear passage on that. And so we, we did really a whole study on what we called the falsity of assurance. Namely, that assurance of salvation well, can be faked. It can be phony. It can be false. And so that very fact, the fact that there are some who claim faith, but theirs is a, well, it's a false faith, a non-saving type of faith. Just the fact that that exists, and Scripture talks about it quite a bit, just inevitably leads us to ask, well, okay, how do I know that's not me? How do I know, like, I'm not that person? I, I don't think I am, but then again, like, they didn't think they were either. How do I know my faith in Jesus is true? That I'm not deceived? You know, I might say, I feel it in my heart, but, but they, they, they felt that too. They, they supposedly felt that. How do I know my faith is real? How do I gain the assurance of my faith? And so answering that question has been our specific aim, I think, for the past three weeks. In the big picture, we're trying to determine if true faith resides in our heart. If you can say yes to that, if you can say true faith resides in your heart, well, you're saved. You can have full assurance. This is based on faith. But the question really morphs and becomes, how do I know true faith resides in my heart? We can't see, we can't see in there. We can't see my heart. We can't see these spiritual matters. We don't have eyes to see who the elect really are. There's no spiritual radar that, that objectively tells us who the saved are. We, we just, we can't see that. Salvation is by faith. So we go by what a person says, what they confess. But that profession of faith needs to be verified if assurance is going to result. Because faith can be faked. And thankfully, though, there's answers here. We're not just left blind. So I know we're still, you know, this is like big picture recap, but we have technically covered all this. But nonetheless, we're given ways in Scripture to, well, to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see, you know, are we in the faith? Is my faith in Jesus the real deal as defined by Scripture? The Bible teaches that when a person is saved by faith, they're born again. That means they're given a new nature. It's a spiritual thing, though. This is not like physically. They don't look different. It says that on the inside, they're taken out a heart of stone, given a heart of flesh. They're given a new heart that loves the Lord. Still something we can't see, though, but it says it takes place. They were spiritually dead. Now you come to spiritual life. And being alive, though, like all living things, what's going to happen? They're going to grow. They're going to bear fruit. Now that they're alive, there's spiritual life now where as once there was not, well, just by definition, they'll grow, they'll bear fruit like all living things. That's not optional. It's part of the definition of coming alive, of new birth. Like, well, it's just, it will happen naturally as natural as a good tree bears good fruit. The true believer, the new believer will, well, they'll grow, they'll bear fruit over time. The changes that took place on the inside will show themselves on the outside. So practically speaking, the main way you can tell a person's faith is real is by evaluating what that faith produces. And it does a person's faith claim in Jesus bear fruit. 
Are they growing and bearing fruit like all living things? Because now we're dealing with something we can see. Now we're dealing with something we can observe, we can measure, we can evaluate. And this is so why I keep saying, practically speaking, this is what our assurance, in a sense, is based on. If you guys do gardening, you sow a seed in the ground. How do you know it's germinated and sprung to life? You don't. You can't see. It can't see underground. We just we can't see unless you dig it up, I guess. But otherwise, you don't know. You can't see. But you know, just give it a little time. It will become obvious because you'll see a little green shoot emerge from the soil. And you know, like, well, clearly, obviously, that seed is germinated. Now, do some, you know, we just do like hobby gardening at home. But, you know, I remember sowing like beet seeds. And they always say, you know, put two or three in each hole, two or three seeds in each little hole as you space them around. And they because, say that because, well, some seeds might be duds, especially if they're a couple years old. They might not germinate. They may not, no longer be good seeds, and so nothing will come. And, and lo and behold, you do that. Some of the holes, you, you see three shoots emerging. You got to clip two. One time I didn't do that with carrots. I didn't know, like, you have to thin them out. And I just let it go. And come harvest time, I pulled them up, and there are all these, like, inch-long micro carrots never matured because they weren't thinned out. But anyway, sometimes, though, none of them emerge. And you're like, well, I guess I had three duds. Point is, though, it just, just takes a little bit of time, not even a lot of time, and it becomes pretty obvious because, you know, a seed germinating, that, that's a pretty big deal. It leads to significant change and significant growth. It's a miracle in our eyes, but nonetheless, it, time will tell pretty quickly whether that was a good seed or a bad seed. Or to kind of switch analogies, how do you know you've got a good, healthy tree versus a bad, sick tree? Like, I don't know. I can't see on the inside of the tree. I can't see its root structure. can't see its circulation. Who really knows? But you can see the leaves, the bark, the fruit, the things on the outside. How do they appear? Do the things we see accord with everything we know about good, healthy trees? Or, or not? You see, that's something we can do. That's something we can see, we can evaluate. Again, for, for example, we've got a bunch of oak yards in our front yard. And uh, one of them is like literally bleeding, like not, you know, our blood, but it's, it's oozing this dark reddish brown liquid substance from one of the, the knots, for, I think from an old branch that came off. And when it drops to the ground, it kind of looks like blood. It's pretty interesting. And I had it checked out. Apparently it's called flux and it's not a good sign <laughs> that the tree is stressed and it might have some root rot and some kind of fungus. We got to clean up the mulch around it and all that stuff, but you know, you, just, you look on the outside, and it tells you what's going on on the inside. Common sense, right? Well, Bible teaches the same thing. You apply that to the Christian. Are you a good seed or a bad seed? Are you a good tree or a bad tree? I can't tell in one sense. I can't see into your heart. But I can't see what comes out of your heart. And so when you look at a person's life, their walk, their habits, their pattern, their fruit, we compare all that to here's everything we know very clearly from Scripture about what a a true Christian looks like with true faith. So what they will look like, that's just you compare and, well, do, do the pictures match up or not? Well, your assurance will rise or fall accordingly. And so we found that practically speaking, the quest for assurance of salvation, it does involve a form of self evaluation. It's right and appropriate to evaluate yourself and your performance, not because your salvation depends on your performance and not because your assurance depends on your performance per se. Your salvation, your assurance both depend on faith, but your life, your growth, and your fruit, they will either confirm or deny the reality of your faith. And so that's why we carefully evaluate ourselves. This is our life fit the picture of the new birth as defined by scripture. And in a sense, it's not complicated. You look, look, look at a caterpillar, look at a butterfly. They've got some pretty distinct differences. You know, after metamorphosis, the caterpillar changes quite a bit and it's, it's not hard to tell, you know, am I dealing with it pre-metamorphosis or post-metamorphosis? It's pretty obvious. Does it have wings or not? Does, can it fly or not? Does it still look like a worm or not? 
These are simple evaluations, and they'll tell you if you're dealing with a caterpillar before or after metamorphosis. It's, it's not that complicated. And likewise with Christians, it may not always be that simple to make that evaluation, but in essence, you're doing the same thing. You know, based on how this person looks, not physically, but just how they live, you can tell if you're dealing with a person before or after new birth. And so this is why, accordingly, for several weeks, we've been studying you know, 10, we revise it down to 10 distinguishing marks of saving faith. 10 distinguishing marks of true saving faith. And we finished that list, except one final mark we'll add here at the end. We'll get back to that. These marks help distinguish. They, they give us a picture of the person who has undergone metamorphosis by faith in Christ. New birth. This is what they're going to look like. And so these 10 marks include obedience, repentance, love for God, love for others, a loss of love for the world, doctrinal orthodoxy, true humility, private prayer, and endurance amidst suffering. Now, we're not going to look at them in detail again. We've done that. We don't need to do that again. If you missed, you can get the messages online and see each of those in detail. But I still want you to keep thinking about all of this from a higher level. This is our conclusion. So, I, you know, for those of you who have, have been with us, we're, we're taking a step back and looking at all of these issues from that bigger picture level. You look at these marks of faith. Again, we're not saved by doing these things. You're not saved by obeying God or loving others or being humble or praying. You're not saved just because you have a perfect doctrinal statement. But all of these things, according to Scripture... They should naturally emerge after true salvation. Before salvation, you're not going to find these things present in a person's life. After salvation, you will. That's why we call them distinguishing marks. And so if they're absent from your life, well, you, you have reason to be concerned. Now, practically though, how do you use this list? How do you, you know, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, how do you administer this test to yourself. How do you use these marks to evaluate yourself? You probably still have questions. In theory, super simple. Right? Just look at the picture of a true believer. He's going to obey, repent, love God, love others, not love the world, believe truth, display true humility, pray even when alone, endure through trials. Just take that picture, look at your life. Does that describe you? Did we just describe you or not? Sounds really simple in theory. In practice, though, as you do that to yourself, it can get complicated and sometimes frustrating and challenging. Why? Let me explain that. For some people, they, they get it wrong because they, are, they think that they're supposed to compare themselves to the standard of perfection. When you look at this list, you know, do I perfectly match this list? Well, no. Nobody does. Who's perfect? Who obeys God perfectly all the time? Who loves others and is never selfish? Who stays completely out of the world? Who prays as much as they should? And so they look at this picture of a true believer and they say like, okay, like this somewhat resembles me. Like sometimes it resembles me, but you know, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I fall short of these things in seasons of life or areas of life, kind of go in and out sometimes and like, that don't perfectly match up to this list. So does that mean I'm not saved and I can't have assurance? If you think you're being measured against perfection when it comes to assurance, well, you'll never have assurance because nobody perfectly measures up. That's, that's not how you use the list. Or what if you look at this picture of true faith, you evaluate yourself, and you find that you know, most of the marks are present in your life. You know, one, though, is glaringly absent. Like you, you never privately pray or you, you never have experienced that loss of a love for the world. So what then? Does that mean you're like 90% saved or you're just not saved? You can have no assurance? How does this work? Well, you got to go back to what we've been saying from the beginning. We're trying to see if faith, if your faith is living and real. And well, what do living things do? They grow and bear fruit. This self-evaluation is not checking to see if you are a perfectly mature, complete tree. 
It's not what we're checking here. You're simply testing, like, is the tree dead or alive? Like, it's a pass-fail thing. It's not like, you know, how mature are you? That's, that's a separate evaluation, you could say. But, no, we're just asking, like, are you alive? Are there signs of life? Are you growing and bearing fruit? We're not asking, do you perfectly obey God? Are you growing and bearing fruit? You might discover you're somewhat of an immature tree. You're still kind of that sprout that hasn't put out a ton of fruit yet. But, you know, if you're growing and bearing some fruit, you can be assured your your faith is real. Again, though, if assurance is based on just perfect faith, perfect maturity, perfectly lining up to these marks of faith, no one can be assured because, well, nobody perfectly measures up to this on this side of eternity. We're all works in progress. And though we are justified by faith, even our faith is made to grow, right? We're designed to grow in faith and practice throughout our entire lives. So throughout various seasons of life, you might bear more fruit or less fruit. What we're asking here, though, is, is there any fruit on the tree? Are there any signs of life? Do any of these marks register with you at all? Do you see distinct changes in your life from before Christ? Just evidence of new birth. Do you see things present that weren't there before? Are you growing? Are you bearing fruit or not? If you are, even if imperfectly, you can be assured. I mean, look, who's to say how much fruit is required before you can be assured anyway? Just remember, at the end of the day, we're just trying to tell if faith resides in the heart. Can't see that, but it will show itself somewhere. The new birth, it's not a, it's not a small, simple change. It, it's this metamorphosis, caterpillar, butterfly. And so if it really happened to you, like it's going to show itself somewhere. In reality, the person who should be really concerned is the one who just, they don't see any of that change. That There is no change. And they see a consistency, a lack of growth and fruit. With careful counsel and consideration, that person might need to ask whether or not they've truly clung to Christ in their heart as their Lord and Savior for salvation. Like, does faith really exist in that person's heart? I can't see in their heart, but I can see like nothing. There's nothing on the outside. There's no faith. There's no works. There's no obedience. No this and that. So if it's there, why is it not showing itself even a little? Why is there no difference? As we found in, in 1 John The person living in ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin, who lacks fruit over the long term, whose pattern of life still basically matches those in the world, well, that person should not have assurance of salvation. What's their assurance based on? Nothing. And usually in the end, time will tell. I can't say that person is definitively unsaved. If they're still professing Christ, but there's no fruit. I cannot say definitively they're not saved because I, I can never see into their heart, but I can at least counsel them through the word where you should not have assurance of salvation. They might truly be saved. It might need a, a, you know, a strong rebuke or maybe the Lord will discipline them. As Hebrews tells us, God is faithful to discipline his true children who get to that point. They kind of wander. They're a little hardened by sin. He's faithful to discipline them and bring them back. They will start to grow again and bear fruit again. But, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. You know, along these lines, again, we're just trying to wrap things up and bring things together. Let me share with you a couple of case studies of people seeking assurance of salvation. Maybe this just help you think through it a little more. Maybe if you're counseling someone else who's wondering about their salvation or you're just evaluating yourself, maybe looking at some real examples might help you. And these are both real people. I've obviously changed their names. These were some young people I canceled at my old church. Yeah, I made up their names. I'll keep things rather general as well, but it gives you a little picture of what this might look like in practice somewhat. So we'll call the first young lady Jennifer. She was a relatively new believer. She didn't grow up in the church. She came to learn about Jesus through a friend and started coming to church and hanging out with Christians She liked the atmosphere and kind of the friendships. And she heard the gospel and claimed to believe in Jesus. But very soon after she came to me for counseling, she had severe doubts of her own salvation. And she had a severe fear of hell. 
She was afraid to go to sleep sometimes, fearing that if she died in her sleep, she might wake up in hell. And she had the complete insecurity of salvation, the opposite. And so first step, what do you do? Well, we went over the gospel. Like, What, what does this person actually believe? Did she even confess and profess faith in Jesus and the true gospel? What exactly was she believing in? Well, the thing is, she didn't know the gospel. She was saying the right things, which, and in a sense, you know, makes it harder. Like, well, 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 then what's your problem? But there is a real profession of faith. But again, professions of faith, they can be faked. The jury's still out. Why was she having such severe doubt about her own salvation? Part of you wants to tell her, well, look, you're, you're saved because you say you believe in Jesus, and that's how people get saved. So just you know, stop worrying about it. Just convince yourself you're saved and just sleep easy. Part of you wants to say that, to put someone at ease. But another part of you knows, you know, it's, it's possible for people to say all the right things and not truly be saved. Maybe this young woman is not born again. I can't see into the heart. And last thing I want to do is give someone a false assurance. That's not good. So what do you do? You give time. What can you do? You, you give time. So I pointed her to, to truth about God, his power, his promises, get her in the word, see his, the gospel more, see his sovereignty, all that stuff. Gave it time. Over time, things did not improve. Now, she looked like she was doing the right things on the outside. Seemed like an average Christian, right? She was not living in blatant sin, showing up to church regularly. She had a study Bible, taking notes. She was in the fellowship. Check the right boxes. Look like, you know, everyone else in the church. So what do you do in such a case? Is this person saved or not? And after a while, because she was showing some of the positive signs, some of the marks of faith. Now, I cautiously tried to help build her assurance, thinking, well, this person's just, they're, they're weak, they're immature, they're, they're struggling. But based on what I can see, what they say, you know, they they, are, they seem to believe in Jesus, and they should grow in assurance. I did believe she was saved. But the severe lack of assurance and her severe fear of hell persisted. And those were always in my mind as, at the very least, yellow flags. That's, that's not normal or correct for someone who is really, really trusting in Christ in their hearts. That shouldn't result. So there's still some disconnect. And it didn't take long before the floodgates opened. And over time, things started to come out in counseling, because I don't know this person apart from Sundays and apart from counseling. You don't really know what someone's like. But we learned some things were going on in her life in secret. She had a double life. Her life in private did not match her life in public. She had a little religious experience at church, but at home, nothing. You know, Christianity was something she experienced socially you know, at church, but away from those people or at home, there's not much Christian about her at all. And she did not have this, you know, loving, devoted, personal relationship with God as her Abba Father. It was more of like a social thing. And meanwhile, there was an area of sin and rebellion hanging on in her heart. She was clinging to it, guarding it. She wanted to hang on to it. I don't need to publish what the sin was. It was very serious sin. And she knew it was wrong. She claimed to repent, but never actually did. She never actually stopped. She never changed. She kept engaging in that sin, all the while telling people, oh yeah, I'm done with that. Things are different now. And uh, this other pattern of lying and cover-up and hiding emerged. She just kind of get, went, went deeper into that, that darkness. And all the while, she kept wondering why she did not feel saved or have assurance of salvation. Well, that's why. You know, obedience repentance, love of God, love for the world, or love of others, loss of love for the world, private prayer, true humility. Kind of go down the list. And as things came out, what her life was really like became clear she was severely lacking in, in all these areas. Now, as a counselor, you don't really know at first. You just see someone on Sundays. But like I said, truth has a way of coming out over time. And in a way, I was thankful that she did not feel assurance because there's nothing, nothing worse than a person who is sick, but they're convinced they're healthy. 
That's when a person is really far gone. But her conscience was testifying against her that she was being a total hypocrite. And uh, until someone is really at the point of hardening, that conscience is a real witness. And she was living a lie and a double life, an ongoing, unrepentant, habitual sin. And the evidences of true faith she did have, upon further evaluation, it just became clear they were motivated out of just kind of social acceptance. This was her little social circle or just self-righteousness. What this young woman needed to do if she was to potentially be saved or to gain assurance was repent, turn, return to Christ and, and really seek him again from your heart as your Lord. And you can't have him as Lord if you and your sin are Lord in your heart. If you're really still submitting ultimately to sin and self, that you're, you're following the last call of which direction I go is decided by me and my heart. You don't have a Lord. You call him Lord. But like he said in Matthew 7, why do you call me Lord, Lord? They didn't do what he said. They lived in their own lawlessness. And well, they found out the hard way that their profession was false, not saving. Sadly, though, that's not what this young lady did. She did not repent. Pretty soon thereafter, she fell away, which, well, that's the ultimate proof positive, or I guess you could say proof negative of where she was at. It was too hard to keep up the charade. She turned away from the faith and later hardened her conscience. And she chose her sin, revealed her true colors. It's very sad, but I, I find when it comes to assurance with these issues, it, it does have a way of showing itself in the end. Time and evaluation you know, go hand in hand. But real quick, let me give you a, a second brief case study. It's nearly identical to the first in many ways. There's another young lady in the church, profession of faith, very similar to the first, different time periods, but had the appearance of being a Christian, went to church, and would go to a ladies' conference here and there, read the Bible occasionally, prayed you know, every now and then, had a desire to raise her kids in the faith. Okay, good. But similarly, came out in counseling. She was living an ongoing, habitual sin. She felt really bad about it. Her sin was quite serious. She knew it was wrong. She had confused sorrow with repentance. So she thought, well, I feel bad. But she never actually changed or turned away from her sin. She fell short of actual repentance. But there is one massive monumental difference between this lady and the first. You know, so you have a person, they know the gospel, they've believed the gospel, they claim that Jesus is the Lord, they love him, but meanwhile, they're, they're tolerating all this sin in their life. You know, are they saved or not? Is their faith true or not? I don't know, I can't see into their heart, but we can see what comes out, we can see the response. The difference with this second lady is that through counseling, she, she really humbled herself. She had kind of a prodigal son moment. She came to realize, you know, like, what, what have I been doing? Enough is enough. I have been deceived. My flesh, my own flesh has deceived me here and, and taken me away. And she really did love the Lord. She really did love Christ. She, she did in her heart of hearts. She did want to obey him. But her flesh was really, really strong. And her spirit was weak and immature. And she was alive. And she displayed that, though, by well, learning genuine repentance and, and really turning away, forsaking that sin, re-seeking the Lord. Like David and Bathsheba, though that sin went on for some time, she sought the Lord in genuine forgiveness. And she was determined to you know, go and sin no more. It, it's time to, to change and seek the Lord. And she did not become the most mature Christian you've ever seen overnight. She didn't. But we saw in her real change, real growth, real fruit. You know, some Christians, they're like trees, and for a season, they've been starved of food and water. And so, you know, they're not bearing much fruit. They're shriveling up. It's hard to tell. It. Are they actually alive or dead? They're not walking by the Spirit. They're not being fed by the Word. But as she hit a moment of conviction, repented, re-engaged in the Word, in prayer, in the church, her spiritual life took off again. And all of the marks re-emerged. Obedience repentance, love of God, love of others, loss of love for the world, doctrine, humility, private prayer, endurance. This young lady still was not the most mature Christian ever, but there were signs of life. There's real, genuine growth and fruit. And because of that, we're happy to help her build her assurance that she should have assurance of salvation. 
You know, as you consider the assurance of your own salvation and evaluate yourself and your faith, you're going to find you fall short of the standard of perfect Christ-likeness. You do. I do. But what I find maybe the most telling is how a person responds to the realization that they fall short, to the lack of fruit in their life, to the lack of growth, how they respond to all the areas in which they fall short. And how does a true believer respond? Well, he or she is convicted. They're pierced in their heart. And as they look into God's word, they see a standard. It hurts them to see all the ways they fall short and how they dishonor the God who saved them. Like they don't pray as they should. They don't love others like they should. They're convicted. But it leads to repentance and change. When their eyes are open to the truth and even the truth about them, that they're not content and they strive by God's grace to grow. And I find that conviction right there is, is a game changer. That's such a big deal in my book, at least. And if, that, if it comes out of a motive to glorify God, it's safe to say that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's not coming from the flesh. Right? That true, sincere, godly conviction is not coming from the flesh. It must be the Holy Spirit. Indeed it is. It's a sign you have the Spirit. You are alive. It's a sign of life. And speaking of the Spirit now, I think we just finish our time by adding that final mark of distinguishing true faith, right? That tenth mark that we kind of left for the end. I think it actually helps round out the discussion. That's why I saved it for the end. So hopefully it ties things together, but there's a tenth and final distinguishing mark of true faith. It's this, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And several verses connect our assurance with this internal testimony of the Spirit. That the Spirit in our hearts bears witness to our salvation. If you're still in Romans, bonus points, just turn to Romans 8. You don't have to go far, just turn to Romans 8, 15 through 17. Maybe we can start verse 14. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who's the son of God? Who's saved? Well, the ones being led by the Spirit. He says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You see here, there's two witnesses to your salvation. It's the Holy Spirit and your own spirit. And when they work together by the mouth, you could say of two witnesses, your assurance may be confirmed. What does the Holy Spirit lead us to cry out though? Abba, Father. Now, that's special. That's an intimate, personal title for God. You know, that the Pharisee would not call God Abba, Father. It's, it's too intimate, too personal. God's distant. In English, though, if you had to translate this or, or you know, find a, an equivalent, it's often said like the word daddy is such a tender word. You can't say that in pride. You know, that's just such a childish word. But that captures this, the tenderness, this real relationship, this father-child personal, dependent relationship. People in the world, they can claim to know God. They can claim to be spiritual. Not like this. Not like God is your dad, your your daddy. And the Spirit, though, enables us to personally know in our hearts the God of the universe as our dad. It's talking about personal relationship. And yes, to a degree, this is subjective. But if you're saved, you should have this otherwise unexplainable personal relationship with God as your father. Where's that coming from? I'm going to ask you a feeling question, but do you feel in your heart that God is your father? Does your heart just cry out to God as your father? You can't fully explain it. It's just there. It's just your heart cries out. You believe that God is your father. You have a personal relationship with God as your dad. You know, when, when you're in trouble, Do you complain and curse God? Or do you just call out to your dad for help? Like what comes out of your heart? 
Is there evidence that God is your father? But this internal testimony of the spirit isn't all subjective. You know, those who are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. You know, those walking by the spirit, those bearing the fruit of the spirit, those seeing the sanctifying work of the spirit in their life, they can grow in the realization of their assurance. Because after all, spiritual growth is a spiritual work. It's wrought by the Holy Spirit, not the flesh. You know, just the, the mere presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts is meant to give us assurance. You know, John says this twice in 1 John. Just listen for the sake of time. I'll try and wrap this up. But 1 John 3.24, he says, We know by this that God abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. In 1 John 4.13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. John says this, this internal testimony of the spirit tells us we know God. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, likewise says how God sealed us in salvation with the spirit. It's given as a pledge of our inheritance. God gave us the spirit as a down payment to assure us that we're saved and he will finish our salvation. Here's the spirit. Here's a down payment. You know, my word is good. He gave us the spirit as a pledge. So this means if you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can be assured that is a sure mark of salvation. Now, I know I'm hitting you again with something that's invisible. Like, okay, well, how do I know I have that? That's invisible. But the fruit of the spirit are visible. And really all the marks of faith we've covered so far Are those not all merely expressions of fruit of the Spirit? They are. And so as these are present in your life, as you mature and grow and bear fruit, you see this is not a work of the flesh. That's a work of the Spirit. You gain the knowledge that God's Spirit really is residing in you. It's what's causing you to change and grow and be convicted. That's not your flesh. And that should lead you to join the Holy Spirit in your heart of hearts, just calling out to God with confidence as your dad. After all, God wants us to know he's our father. He wants us to know we're his children now. I mean, he went through all the trouble of saving us and adopting us. He wants us to know that because he wants us to live as his children. He's giving us a mission now as his children. You can't do that if you're doubting whether you're a child or not. If you're going to get busy with the mission he's given, you got to know. This is in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's kind of like the parallel of Romans 8. But God wants you to know this. He wants you to know what he's done for you. He wants you to live in light of this. No longer a slave of sin, but, but a child of God. And we know that by our faith in his son and by the Holy Spirit to whom he's given to us. We know we're children because of our faith in his son and by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. And together, this spirit working through our faith will grows us, causes us to bear fruit, the fruit of the spirit. And as we see that fruit, we see the evidence emerge in our life. Well, then we can be fully assured, even though we're not perfect and we are saved. We have his spirit. We have true faith. And then we can have confidence that you know, the God who began this work will perfect it. Because we're not perfect, but he promises to perfect that work in all those in whom he has begun it. In the meantime, then, we can live with peace and joy and boldness, with that security and confidence, no longer worrying about our salvation. We can spend all our time now just worrying about how do we maximize the time we have on this, or on this earth to to serve him, to glorify him, to to be about his mission he's given to us. It's what he wants to see from us. Well, hopefully this helps you 
as you think about assurance of salvation in your own life, as you try and tie together all that we've learned, even, even as you evaluate yourself and think about your own life, that you, you look in the mirror, you look at what true faith looks like, and I pray you are found approved, found passing the test. Not, not perfect, but you show signs of life, signs of growth and fruit. Now you can know through the spirit within, you are God's child. I'll leave you with Jude 24, 25. Oh, it's a good way to end a message. This is now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And give God the glory for our salvation and the assurance he gives. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do want to give you the glory as our great God. And, and our hearts, for those here who do know you, as we just even read a verse like that, thinking about the God who has saved us, our, our hearts testify. We, we do give you the glory. We know our flesh, <clears throat> our flesh doesn't. And part of us is still in rebellion against you. But we now in our heart of hearts, in the spirit within, we can testify and agree with everything Scripture says. That you are God alone. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise and dominion, as is your son, Christ Jesus. And we do confess him as Lord and Savior in our hearts, believing you raised him from the dead, proving everything he said was true. We believe all that. We really do trust you and love you and know that you're our, our father, our dad in heaven. And I pray that we can, you know, by this assurance, grow and experience peace and joy and just thanksgiving, a life of confidence that you want us to have because you, you've given us a mission. We are left in this world, even with the flesh, even to struggle. But you've given us work to do, and uh, we need to be busy about it. And that will only come after assurance. So just build in us truth. Help us to evaluate. Give us wisdom and eyes to see and discern. Encourage us. Ultimately, that our salvation is not based on us or our performance, but on Christ and his performance. May we in our heart of hearts truly cling to him, the author and perfecter of our salvation. By this, ultimately, we'll be assured, we'll be secured, and then we can live for him. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.